Hello and welcome back to the Everyday Anarchism series on Kim Stanley Robinson's Triptych of Possible Futures, Three Californias. Last week we left off with the fact that this particular future, the Gold Coast, is now our present. Yes, in this novel, it's the 2020s. Capitalism just keeps getting worse. There's war everywhere. There are no middle-class jobs. Corporations run everything. The world has been built for cars, not for people. Professor is no longer a middle-class job, etc., etc. You know, the reality that we are living in. Also, I want to remind you that we left off, and you'll hear this bit again, that Reagan was very, very bad. Here's my conversation with Kim Stanley Robinson about his unbelievably perceptive novel, The Gold Coast. So... I think the place to get to uh, the Gold Coast is to say that we, you know, the conversation we were having about democratic socialism versus social democracy, what this would mean, whatever, it might seem just to, you know, leftist intellectuals talking in terms of the wild shore, but in terms of the Gold Coast and the Pacific Edge, it's very much not. There are explicit discussions of democratic socialism and social democracy and how one gets there in the Pacific edge. And then the gold coast is the story of what would happen if you didn't ever try to bring about democratic socialism or social democracy or, or anything else. And before we launch into that, I want to say, and I want your thoughts on this. This book is called three Californias for a reason not that it's three different, you know, ways that California could be, although it is that, but it's three different ways that California is. It is the um, California of the Sierras and John Muir and of the pioneer and of nature. It is, it is the, I mean, California is one of the places most associated in uh, the United States with development and the mall and, freeways and of course california is the is the left coast is the closest state in the state still to this day um to social democracy that obviously when we're thinking about orange county in the 70s and 80s the the younger listeners will not know its uh right-wing reputation but obviously and we talked about this in the high sierra episode there is a a progressive left-wing tradition in california I would say at this point, surpassing any other state. So it's not that these are three potential Californias. These are three California, three strands of California as it exists that have been drawn out. And this is the Orange County Developers California. That's what the Gold Coast is. Yes, yes. It was written in the middle of the Reagan years and Reagan's, uh, you know, He's been outpaced in badness by um, Bush Jr. and by Trump, but he was very bad. <laughs> and uh, he set a standard for badness that the others have matched and some, in some cases out, outstripped. But his reactionary move against Keynesianism into neoliberalism, along with Thatcher, the return to 
the right and the destruction of the New Deal that Reagan represented in the 80s, and then the war on Nicaragua, the various Iran-Contra, the various world domination um, moment in Reagan. He was a clothhead. He was not a smart man. He was a sneaky, devious uh, rat who, when he was head of the Screen Actors Guild, wrote to Herbert Hoover asking who he could betray. So he was a sleaze, but he was also a dimwit. And the combination was quite horrible because he hired a bunch of people who were smarter than him, who, who they didn't really, maybe they did his bidding, but he was never really a thinker. He was just a guy with a simpleton's idea, but he was president. And the United States in the 80s felt quite ugly, especially if you had grown up in the late 60s and the 70s and were thinking that everything was changing, that the world was dynamic, that history was happening, that we were gonna be more progressive. And 1980 was like a door slamming in your face. So by the time I wrote Gold Coast, I was very disgusted with American politics and a feeling of dismay and of shock that it had turned around so fast. The realization that the hippie dream, and I was a young hippie, was, a minority position and that Nixon had been right. There was a silent majority that was ready to crush us when they could. And Reagan was that. So that's where the Gold Coast came from, was an, a sense of intense anger and capitalism run amok was, and Orange County was being overrun by developers. So the double-decker freeway was a real plan. The um, complete uh, covering of Orange County by suburbia was happening and it has happened. Um, and so, uh, unfortunately, it's really the Gold Coast is the realist novel of the three, the one that is the closest portrait to what I saw, what I lived. And then I, I did a good thing. Usually putting myself and my family in my novels is a terrible idea. It just um, weakens the novels. All of my weakest novels have had that basic uh, element of me thinking it would be a wonderful idea to write about me and my family, which is never true. It just isn't. But in the Gold Coast, there was something going on there. My dad's career in the defense industry was exemplary of the badness of that industry, the false, uh, um, the lying, the, the corruption of the defense industry. And then my mom was um, a wonderful, I won't say saintly, because she was so tough and so uh, irritated by life, but she was a beautiful person. And so getting my parents into the novel, the, the me character is just a nothing, just a kind of placeholder to show everybody else. Um, and Jim's story is uninteresting compared to the rest of them, even though he's the central character. But to get my parents in and, and peg them the way I did, which I didn't realize till a couple of years ago, how faithfully I had portrayed them, how little I made up. And now for me, that's extra precious, but I also think that they're great characters in that novel. And then the situation, like, what do you do where this world, and in the Gold Coast, there are two sentences. We use drugs as a weapon to kill boredom and fear and pain. And then we use weapons as a drug mm. to stimulate the economy, to, to make ourselves excited. And those complimentary sentences and Orange County was the height, was the, the heart 
of the weapons industry, the defense industry in the in the 1980s, including the ridiculous strategic defense initiative, Star Wars, Reagan's. Um, this, these were science fiction writers who had unfortunately convinced Reagan in his stupidity that we could have space defense. This was um, Larry Niven, Jerry Purnell, Hein, maybe Heinlein was involved, but in any case, they were they were wrong. Reagan was wrong, and my dad got caught up in that and chewed up. So there's some. I guess it's the first novel I ever wrote where real experiences out of my real life, as opposed to literary experiences, seized me up, and I was able to express them properly. So I'm I'm quite pleased by the Gold Coast. It stands up. It has a train wreck of a plot. In that you, the reader can see two trains headed for each other for a collision for many pages, and I, I'm not the a, a canny plotter. Uh, that's not really my forte. But Gold Coast has a hell of a plot too. Yeah. So one thing I think at this point I should say is that I, um, I'm teaching a section of major American authors right now at at UNC. Um, it's an asynchronous class, so I don't get to interact with the students much. I just see their writing. Mm. And I just thought if I give them, if I give these students who are working a summer job, you know, Melville and Hawthorne and Wharton, they're just not going to read it. Mm. So uh, I'm giving them a little Emerson and some Whitman. And then the two big novels are The Roundhouse by Erdrich and then oh. uh, The Gold Coast. So Sweet. the students right now actually probably literally write the second as we're talking because they have a draft due at midnight uh, are writing uh, <laughs> a paper on the gold coast. And uh, I'm very curious to see what they come up with, but I can tell you, well, first of all, I'm forcing them to write it in dialogue with either Emerson Whitman or Ralph Waldo Ellison. So that's fun. But secondly, they've really um, glommed on to the character of Dennis McPherson as opposed to Jim. Yeah. They, they, they see, Dennis, the character based on your dad as the as the interesting one and his reflections on the defense industry and whether the American system of checks and balances work. At one point, they had to choose a passage from a range of uh, chapters and reflect on it. And I think half of them might have chosen the passage where Dennis McPherson decides Oh, you know, the system is working and we 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 hired some lawyers and a good outcome is going to come out of what happens in Washington. And I have the right <laughs> descriptions of it, Stan, and they're like, this is a really good statement about how America has troubles, but in the end, you know, the checks and balances work. God, God knows what happens when they get to the end of the novel. Um, yeah. So I don't uh it really does seem that this uh that that dynamic between the two, the father and son, uh, it anchors the novel in in a way that I don't see a relationship anchoring either of the two other novels. There are important relationships in the other two novels, but the Jim and Dennis and their two poles and their similarities and their conflicts are 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 different from the other novels. And I I think the fact that the students are more interested in Dennis ref reflects that, if that makes sense. Yeah, he's the one under pressure. Uh, my teacher, Damon Knight, said uh, to choose the protagonist, think about who hurts in this situation, mm. who's, who's caught between a rock and a hard place. And for sure, that's Dennis. 
in this book. And I interviewed my dad before I left for Switzerland, knowing I was going to write this book. I sat down with him at the kitchen table with a notebook in my hand. And we talked for about two hours and he drew out, he drew drawings of the laser guided missiles that later devastated Iraq. And I was talking oh. to him, this is 1985, but he was working on precursor systems. Um, and then also the story of the betrayal, the, the, the Air Force going for a lower bid that was clearly cheating that was going to end up being a higher bid, the corruption, the, the fact that you couldn't appeal to anybody. And that if you went to the legal system, you might win in, in front of the judge, but then the Air Force would freeze you out forevermore, which happened. So I took notes like a crazy man, and I wrote down Dennis's story precisely happened to my dad. I didn't change a thing. When I sent him the book, I was scared to death. And I, I they had visited us in Switzerland and then they went home and I sent them home with the manuscript. I didn't hear from them for like a month. <laughs> I was thinking, oh my God, he's never going to speak to me again. Uh, you know, he's upset. And um, he, uh, I finally called. I said, uh, hi, what are you, uh, you know, did you read my book? And both my parents said, yeah, we read it. And I'm thinking, oh God, you know, now I'm disinherited. And my mom said, you know, why is there so much cursing in that book? I hate all the cursing. <laughs> and, and I said, well, sorry, mom, but it's Orange County. And then my dad said, it wasn't a lieutenant colonel. It was a major general. And I thought, well, come on, dad, you know, that's fine. We can, we can fix the details, but what did you really think? And he said, that is a very sad book. Mm. Wow. Yeah, it was, he was happy. I had written it because it got a story on the record. And so he didn't mind and it was a basically positive portrait, I think. So um, so he didn't mind. And I think, in fact, he liked it that I had done that, that it was a story worth telling. I, it's, it's, I mean, maybe I need to stop leaning on this so much, but it is a positive portrait. I mean, I've handed it to 18-year-olds and 20-year-olds, and they, they view Dennis as this sympathetic figure. They're not that sympathetic kids these days. Uh, to the drug users and, oh, yeah. and whatnot like that's that's not and you know they think protesting is silly and unlikely to get you a job but the idea of someone caught in the machinations of bureaucracy again american college students that's the life they're living they're all caught in the machinations of bureaucracy oh, yeah. starting with the fact that they're taking a class on major american authors just because the bureaucracy demands that they take an English class, they don't, you know. Yeah, so they're, yes, I understand a required class or fitting in or, or filling a program. Well, yeah. they're going to learn some things. And I, I want to quickly add, by the way, that Louise Erdrich is a great novelist. She's one of my favorites to read, and she's so gifted. My God, it's a, um, I, I often turn to her novels when I, when I just want to read a good novel and, my favorite is called Tracks, but yes, um, she has any number of great novels. So she's one of our best. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, I'm doing this fun thing, or I think it's fun. I don't know if this will make it into the episode, but uh, there we're in the 2020s. I forgot to say this novel is set in the 2020s, and we'll get to Tom in a second. The Erdrich novel that we're reading, The Roundhouse, is set 
in the 1980s. I think it's set in 1988, which I think is the year that this novel came out. And then the book was written yeah. in, in 2012. So, like, so here's a book from <laughs> the last yes. decade yes. about the 80s. And then here's a book from the 80s that's about the decade we're, we're living in. And yep. I'm hoping the students are finding that time. It's an infinite loop now. We're just forever traveling from the 2020s to the 1980s <laughs> and then back to the 2020s. That's a bad thought. Again. That's a bad thought. That's like Groundhog Day. We got to break out. We got to have that last day. Well, when you're in the hands of Louise Erdrich, it's a fun, it's an okay journey to be a fun is not that that book's not a fun book, but it's a, it's a worthwhile journey to be on, I guess I should say. Um, she, she's gifted. That's all I can say. I, I read her with a sense of awe. So I do need to say, you know, we've got the same character, Tom Barnard. Yeah. He's he's 81 in this, and he is um, he is a figure of, uh, he, in many ways, he dominates the first book. It's it's True. Tom's ideas and his mentorship of of Henry. And Henry's father is a uh, an important but quiet character, and you've got Steve and John and all these other figures. But it's Tom's view of the world that has raised Henry, and that Henry is grappling with. That's for, true for Jim McPherson. Uh, Tom Barnard, you know, le left wing lawyer, just like. Tom sort of hints he could have been in the first book and and was in the third book. Tom's just an old man, a relative who has stories about the old days, but doesn't seem to have accomplished anything and is not an important figure in in Jim's life. And it seems like that's that's another one of the tragedies of the novel, just that the Tom, not just that Tom's life seems to have been destroyed by the system. I guess we can imagine Dennis ending up like Tom in a few decades, but that Tom's wisdom, which is so helpful to, I'm blanking on the character's name now, Kevin, Kevin in uh, uh, Pacific yes. Edge. Yep. Um, and Henry is, there's there's no connection. Well, or, this or is- fair, just, Or limited yes. connection, I should say. That's true. This is all right, and thank you for that. It's, a, it's the dystopia where the old are just tossed into old folks' home and left to die. The This is the part of the dystopia of the Gold Coast is the treatment of Tom, the wasting of him in multiple mm. ways, including Jim just regarding him as an obligation. And and Jim's smart enough to see that Tom is um, got depths and can teach him things, but he's also distracted by his insane life and only gets down there because his mom tells him to do it and often forgets and then he learns a lot and then he forgets it jim yeah. jim learns and forgets learns and forgets and so um tom's memories in the gold coast from that bed are a lot of them are my childhood memories mm -hmm. from el medina uh, elementary school and so that was a beautiful opportunity to kind of tap deep and talk about orange county from that level what was it like in the early 60s? And I I know that the people talk about what age Tom is, and I know it's in the novels sometimes, but I fudged all of the... <laughs> I don't dates, The dates don't match up perfectly, it's true. No, they're <laughs> not meant to. I meant both, I meant all three of them to be somewhat undated. And yeah. indeed, my editors at Ace and Tor, they kind of thrust dates on oh, me that I would have dodged. Yeah, I would like it to be the vague... 
that they all should be equivalent approximately. And Tom's always lying about his age <laughs> until the until Pacific Edge, where, yeah. where he doesn't care. Um, but but in in the Gold Coast and and in Wild Shore, he's just infinitely ancient in the regard of the younger people. <laughs> and fate awaits all of us. I'm afraid. Um, yep. Yes. <laughs> I feel I feel infinitely ancient sometimes with the undergraduates. Um <laughs> this, you know, this uh I guess I should bring this up. I was thinking about the uh about the bad language. I've felt lucky so far. Not a single one of my students thus far has felt compared uh, compelled to write about the sex scene in uh the Gold Coast, which oh um, is yeah. yeah, is a is a scene in which and I, I, I think it's a very effective scene in terms of the evocation of this of this terrible world. Is a scene in which when people have sex, there's a Black Mirror episode that does a rough version of this. They they are watching videos of themselves as opposed to experiencing it. And I don't want to go too far into saying like, oh, Kim Stanley Robinson predicted the future and it's just like our pornified world or something like that. But I do kind of want to say that this is a pornified vision of sex in written in the 80s that resembles at least so much of the the discourse and understanding that around sex that you see on the internet whether or not that is infiltrating real behaviors to the level in the novel i'm not qualified to judge and probably don't really want to know but i do think that that's one of the places where if the details of the novel are not right like malls are totally out and it's all open air uh, shopping districts the yeah. rough the rust um, of a, you know, totally neoliberal sex has become both uh, like more open and yet somehow less uh, less valuable and meaningful. Everyone, you know, all bits of the environment have been destroyed. I mean, it's adorable to me that Tom's memories of nature are are the orange groves, right? Because the orange groves are in some ways a horrifically <laughs> unnatural. I'm from Florida. The orange groves are in, in they're industrial agriculture. Yeah, they're not they are. anything yeah. that we would consider nature. Thoreau wouldn't consider them nature. You know, if Thoreau was out there, he'd be burning them down or something like that. But compared to a double-decker freeway, the orange yeah. groves become an, an idyllic slice of the natural world. Yes, it's true. There was um, it was a monoculture. It was crazy. Um, it but it was um beautiful to look at, and that Mediterranean coastline vibe, the um, the beautiful artwork that was on the side of the orange crates that became iconic, uh, and the sense that I have myself that wandering in an orange grove was weird and and not nature but it was quite beautiful mm -hmm. and it was and at least it was a living landscape it was agriculture it wasn't nature it's fine it was orchardry and it was what it was i i grew up in it and i have intense memories of it so that i wanted to put in through tom into the gold coast and then i'm i like the way it's kind of almost a steampunk future now i was trying to predict the future without knowing anything about the internet so we have guided cars but they're like slot cars of a yeah. kid in the 1960s <laughs> they got copper contacts to put you on a slot on the freeway and then the internet is there but it's videotapes so that yeah. you can so i didn't 
um, I caught the vibe and yeah. nobody can catch the actual technology. So I feel like Gold Coast does a pretty damn good job in, in ways that are a little unfortunate. Yeah, it's, it's regrettable. <laughs> yes. It's, it's regrettable. Yes. Uh, you know, I was talking to Cory Doctorow recently about how, uh, you know, the science fiction writers can put the vision out there. And his metaphor was, you know, the Ouija board. We can all put our hands on it and kind of unconsciously consciously move it that way yeah i can't imagine anyone trying to move things towards the gold coast even the even the you know the weapons companies uh people are are very unhappy and the politicians seem miserable and the developers also seem to be i mean everyone's miserable and yet we seem to have pulled ourselves to this future one one way or another well, the the momentum was there, and neoliberalism never lost its momentum until maybe the pandemic. Maybe we are in a interregnum to a different political economy and a different structure of feeling. I hope so. I'm I'm working on it, and I notice that uh, thousands of people are working on it. And of course, there are billions of us. But I I see a I feel a, a sea change that I haven't felt. And so writing Gold Coast in, I wrote it in 80, 1986, and it came out in 88. And the fact that it remains quite prescient and, and feels right to all the way up to the pandemic, that's a sad thought. But And, and I take no credit for it. It's just the science fiction is always talking about its present. And so... It does two things. It tries to predict the future and it tries to talk about how the present feels by mm -hmm. em emphasizing certain mm -hmm. future aspects. And I think the Gold Coast did a a, a great job of catching the vibe of of um, reckless, um, unjust, war-based economy headed for a dystopia that that it's the it's the most dystopian novel I've ever written. And and so the the fact that it's got the best portrait of my parents, et cetera, et cetera, it's a complicated thing for me emotionally. But as a novel, I think it definitely works and holds up well. It's I'm still very proud of it. If it was to rate my novels, it would be up there in the in my 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 favorite handful or so, without a doubt. There's something that happened with that one that I was able to hold on to for years afterwards, I was thinking, well, if, if a novel as good as the Gold Coast can come out of my messy life, then who knows what could happen next? And so I, it was an important one for me, for sure. Well, it's also an incredibly messy one. Um, yes. I, it's, it, is, it is the most chaotic of your novels that I have read, and I've read most of them, although not, I haven't done the DC trilogy. Um, it's a it's it's a messy one. I wrote John Dos Passos on like the third page. It's another one of my literary references. I don't know if this is someone you had read at this at this time, um, but it feels like that USA trilogy of all the different characters and all the kaleidoscopic views. The text is interrupted with yes. variously poetic or distorted. Dos Passos calls them the camera eye, and you have some camera eye sequences in there. And we didn't discuss the the plot much of the wild tour which i think is fine i'm hoping people use these books these episodes as inspiration to read the books but you don't you don't need to hear about the plot from us i don't no. think I, I wouldn't even want to touch the plot of this one because what is what is there to say what it is is people living in a totally 
chaotic world in which they refer to one another the the people that they are sleeping with as allies because yeah. they they all want to be sovereign individuals it's a totally it's the atomistic uh fantasy of a laissez-faire capitalist in which everything just bounces off everything else and nothing sticks except somehow capital manages to stick giant assemblages of concrete everywhere, but nothing human or natural or of value sticks. And there's no reason to talk about what happens. You should just, if you're reading the book, just bounce along with the characters and see the, the human cost of this kind of chaotic world well i have several thoughts about this and I, I i agree with all that you say although i gotta say i read dos pasos only in the late 1990s and he blew yeah. my mind yeah. he blew my mind and uh, and my novel 2312 and um uh ministry for the future owe huge amounts to dos pasos's structure from the usa trilogy one of the greatest american novels and in fact it's an interesting thing about Dos Passos because everybody from in my, especially in my generation of being an English major when I was, new criticism and all that, it was always Faulkner, Fitzgerald, Hemingway, the big three. Mm -hmm. And Dos Passos being a leftist in the 30s and a right winger in the 50s, (laughs) exactly (laughs) wrong-footed himself in that both times he was really an outcast. And so he managed to write himself out of the English departments by his politics. But uh, the USA trilogy is um, better than any, um, most of the novels by Faulkner, Fitzgerald, or let's say this, it's as good as, because I'm rereading the big three, and although they are all major league alcoholics, they are all extremely gifted novels. And but Dos Passos was as good as them, and so mm-hmm. was Zora Neale Hurston. And it was just the weirdness of my moment as an English major to focus heavily on the big three. But now back to the Gold Coast, it, it is a messy life they're leading, but the plot for the reader looking from above, following the characters, is as clear as a train wreck. <laughs> um, Dennis is trying to get this stupid defense system to work and sold to the Air Force. Meanwhile, his son has fallen in with a saboteur of uh, the arms industry defense sites in Orange County, such as you can see very clearly that the son is going to end up trying to destroy the uh, work site of his dad. Meanwhile, drugs are being dealt such that the son's friends are slowly but surely trying to land enormous amounts of drugs on that very same industrial site where the bombs are being made. And it all is convening in plot terms. I want to insist on this. It's a plot like a train crash. The tracks are there. The reader sees them. They know that if everybody continues to do what they're doing, unbeknownst to each other, they're going to create a wreck. So it it may be that their lives are messy, but as a plot, it is as clean as a whistle. Uh, yeah, I, I guess a slight disagreement. Maybe the way I would put it is, you know, it's 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 puzzle pieces. Um, if you the as the reader, you know, have read seven chapters in. Well, I mean, there's there's almost like chapter lets. Yeah. So, so yeah. <laughs> even if you've read thirty chapters in that very clear schema i think is not 
uh, a parent. I mean, if you're 10 chapters in, I don't think you have any idea that Jim no. is about to become a left-wing activist. It's these details accrete and what appears to be total chaos has this very clear structure. Sometimes people distinguish, there's some film theorists, I'm blanking on the name, between the plot and the narrative. Uh, yes. The narrative is what's happening. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I'm going to get it wrong, but one of them is what is what happens from sort of a God's eye view. And the other one is how information is presented to the reader or the viewer. The, yes. the events are clear as day the way they are presented to the reader i feel like mirrors the chaos of their life and then you get the clarity eventually at, at a certain point in time it's incredibly obvious where it's all going but if you're 100 pages into it no, i don't think you have a clue where it's going i think that's right that's absolutely the case it, it sort of develops um because you're following three or four different um characters uh, in some detail, and they are doing different things. There's no obvious reason they're going to collide until you see the convergence is happening. When Jim goes to San Diego and he hears from the drug dealers what's going on there, I mean, Sandy, his friend, knows things that he doesn't tell Jim that would be important for Jim to know. It goes on like that. It, for Eventually, the reader has all the pieces of the puzzle, but no character has all the pieces. Yeah. Yeah, And that is, a, I hope, a feeling of dread and suspense when it comes to being a novel. Another thing I would point out in um, structural terms is this is the only novel I've ever written that is mostly in present tense. I was on purpose. I actually quite hate present tense. The current <laughs> fad for it, I think, is a ridiculous fashion that is going to go away because it's a bad form for the novel. But I did it on purpose, A, because... Pynchon showed in Gravity's Rainbow that when your life's out of control and you're just trying to cope mm. with the moment and you have no sense of history whatsoever, present tense conveys that very well. And then also Jim, eventually you realize Jim has been writing these past sections about the history of Orange County. His poetry is crap. Uh, <laughs> And and as I actually did that on, on purpose, although my poetry is not. I'm glad to hear either. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, because it is but, bad. It is, but his uh, he's trying to be a postmodern poet, and and I know what that feels like, and it was fun to write deliberately bad poetry, because I can hardly help it when I even try to write good poetry. But his historical backdrop, where he goes through the history of Orange County, um, kind of decade or century by century, it's in the past tense. It is done as prose poems. This comes out of William Carlos Williams mm. in, the, in the American Grain. Um, uh, these are uh, they're not factual, but they are prose poems of, that are kind of about historical moments. And Orange County has a very um, minimal history if, if, since we don't really know much about the native Californians living there. The, Europe, the European settler colonial history of Orange County is quite uh, minimal, but it's interesting. And it has these moments of of um, pseudo fake uh, American Californian utopia or the dream of California that had some reality, especially in San Francisco, but not in Orange County. So um, I, I alternated the present tense chaos of their lives with Jim trying to sort it out by writing a history, not very different. That's the best part of myself put into that character as well as many of the most foolish parts of myself put in <laughs> character. But 
I was glad to have that history in there. That was important to me. Okay. Uh, um, well then, so uh, it's weird. I do this. I keep doing this with continuity and segues. It's going to make editing harder. But I'm thinking, like the next thing to say is, if we turn to Pacific Edge, the first thing that pops into my mind that we haven't talked about yet that you just brought up is is writing. Um, so you've mm -hmm. talked a little bit about the autobiographical element of of you know especially of the second book, but also of the Wild Shore to a certain extent. Um, again, I think, you know, the the main character, Kevin, who is, uh, like with Jim, uh, an adult who also in some ways hasn't come of age. If the if Henry in the first book is a classic, you know, he's the right age to be coming of age. And this is another thing yes. that I think you did a very mm -hmm. good job of predicting. I mean, oh, going back to um the the gold coast the idea that in the 2020s there would be you know boomer generation people with jobs and their children who have been raised middle class or upper middle class but don't have jobs because neoliberal capitalism has destroyed those jobs and then People haven't grown up in the twenties because you know they may want all of the trappings of the middle class lifestyle and to take responsibility and learn how to fix their car. But whether they want to or not, that's not that's not uh, uh, available. I mean, I'm 39 and I see it with people my age as yeah. still sort of attached to their parents financially because the middle class jobs have gone away. But the people yes. who were born in the 40s, 50s, and 60s managed to hold on to that and can then provide a middle-class life for their children, presumably not to their children's children, because it's not that kind of generational wealth. It's not millions. It's just, oh, hey, I still have my six-figure job and our house is paid off, so I can pay for my kid's house, but God, they're not going to be able to pay for their grandkids' education at Stanford. And that comes out so clearly in in the gold coast i i would not have have seen that coming um yeah it I'm was bouncing a us around well no it was a felt the the logic of late capitalism the the um, the strangulation of the middle class be, to reduce labor costs and increase profits that was clear as a bell through the 80s it hadn't yet um completely strangled the the hopes of young people and so as a baby boomer i have to sometimes defend myself from very intense uh, millennial friends <laughs> who are you know you stole our our but i'm i always say to them you know it wasn't us it's capital it's the logic yeah. of capitalism itself and when you get old you will the capital will have accrued to some of you, but fewer every generation yeah. because of accumulation of capital. That's the game. And, the, and so everybody's in the precariat. And and very few baby boomers actually scored. The rest of them are just poor old people. So it's a it's a, the generational thing is just the strangulation effect of the ordinary workings of capitalism in action. And I and it was easy to see that happening even in the 80s, just that my parents coming from the New Deal, World War II, and then the 50s, the the Trump Glorias, the, the the New Deal paying off with the GI Bill and a growth of a giant middle class where everybody felt like they were going to be middle class and every kid was going to do better. 
Well, that did work for the baby boomers, but then it, the strangulation began to catch us all. So yes, that's all in there. But um, well, we can, in terms of Pacific Edge, the the to try to make something right out of it, that began to be really problematic. Okay, I had already called out for myself, I'm gonna do Utopia. It has to match Gold Coast and Wildshore. The constraints were severe. Like what was gonna happen that in the same time period, things were gonna get better. And I early on decided they couldn't become entirely better. It had to be a work in, pro in process and contested. So some things were better. And I have to admit that Pacific Edge bugs me still in that it doesn't have a great historical explanation for how things got better. I had to have the tip, the classic utopian gap. <laughs> so utopia is there, but it's not connected historically to what came before. And there's not a good explanation in Pacific Edge for the good things that happened. We can leave it at that. This is my reminder that you should read Pacific Edge. For a lot of reasons, The Gold Coast is the most popular of these novels. And as you heard, when I came to teach one of them, I chose The Gold Coast. And now that you've heard the special connection this book has to his family, you know why Stan views this as his favorite. But you also heard him say that Pacific Edge is the most hopeful and maybe the most important. And I have to agree, it is the most important. Even though there's that utopian gap. Well, I'm fine with that gap because I don't view it as Stan's job to tell us how to make a better world, but provide us a vision of what that better world could be. I hear over and over again from people who listen to this show that the overall vibe of this show is hopeful. That really wasn't what I meant it to be, but I know why. I believe a better world is possible. And when we read accounts of the future, usually they suggest that a better world is not possible. And Pacific Edge is a better world, but it is a highly realistic, historical, believable, frustrating, human, all too human world that is nevertheless a utopia compared to the Gold Coast and what we are living in now. I hope you will read it. Either way, definitely come back for my conversation with Stan in September. The music, which you are about to hear, is by David Hill. <laughs>